as you listen to people talk in our society, you begin to realize that there is a huge gap in a lot of people's understanding of the beginnings of our nation. And I want to give you some quotes from some of the, the men that we call our, you know, our nation's founding fathers. And just listen to what they say and how far we've come away from the original purpose of our nation. John Adams, October the 11th, 1798. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. We're kind of beginning to see that, aren't we? John Quincy Adams on the 4th of July, 1821. Listen to this. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. From the day of the Declaration, the American people were bound by the laws of God, which they all, and by the laws of the gospel, which they nearly all, acknowledge as the rules of their conduct. Patrick Henry, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Daniel Webster, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instruction and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Finally, he said, let us not forget the religious character of our origin. Our fathers were brought hither by their high veneration for the Christian religion. They journeyed by its light and labored in its hope. They sought to incorporate its principles with the elements of their society and to diffuse its influence through all their institutions, civil, political, or literary. Let us cherish these sentiments and extend this influence still more widely in full conviction that it is the happiest society which partakes in the highest degree of the mild and peaceful spirit of Christianity. Can you imagine a politician saying that today and what would happen to them? And of course, every election year, you hear people talking about don't mix politics and religion, and you hear people talk about the separation of church and state. Hopefully you know, maybe you don't, that that phrase, separation of church and state, is not in the original documents. And when you study the writings of the founding fathers, what you discover is they did not mean to separate the influences of one from the other. They meant to separate institutional control of the church by the state. Because remember, in England, where they came from, the state 
controlled the church. And one of the primary reasons the pilgrims came to America was for religious freedom. So they wanted to make sure that they kept the church free from governmental control. But nowhere and at no time did they intend for individual believers to not exert influence over the government. In fact, in the early colonies, you had to be born again to even get your name on the ballot to run for an office. And as late as 1850, in order to get into law school, you had to have a theology degree. That might be helpful, huh? We've come a long way. Jesus put it this way, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. We are to have an influence in our world. We're not to hide our light, we're not to store our salt in a storage shed somewhere. And Jesus goes on to say that when the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Somebody put it this way, without salt and light, government deteriorates, society becomes corrupt, government interferes, and salt is trodden underfoot. What a challenge for us. A few years ago, My Country Tis of Thee was written by a Baptist minister, Samuel Smith. The Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892 by a Baptist minister, Francis Bellamy. The words in God we trust on our currency are traced to the efforts of Reverend Watkinson. Uh, John Witherspoon, who is one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was a Presbyterian minister. And I started thinking about the, the people who signed the Declaration of Independence. And in our day, in our day today, there, many of them are being lambasted for some of their behaviors. We certainly don't condone slavery, but we need to acknowledge that these men paid a price so that we could have freedom today. And uh, I just kind of felt like sticking up for what they did for our nation today. And, and I want to go over this. You've probably seen this. You may know all of this. What happened to the men who signed the Declaration of Independence? Five of them were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the war. Another had two of his sons captured. Nine of them fought and died as a result of the war. You remember that phrase? We pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Twenty-four of them were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants. Nine were farmers and large plantation owners. These were well-educated men of means. But they knew that if they were captured, that the penalty would be their deaths. Carter Braxton of Virginia was a wealthy planter and trader, and he saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He had to sell his home and properties to pay his debts, died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him. Vandals or soldiers or both looted the properties of several of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Something that really touched me 
the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. understood that the British General Cornwallis had taken over his, Nelson's, home for his headquarters, and General Washington did not want to attack the home because it was Nelson's home. Nelson told him, take it. And he lost his home, and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife. She died just in a few months later. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their children had to flee for their lives. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves. When he finally was able to get back home, his wife was dead, his children were gone, and a few weeks later, as you might imagine, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. These are men that when they said, for the support of this declaration, with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They need to be honored. We recognize their frailties. We recognize their errors, but they need to be honored for the price they paid so that you and I can sit around and criticize them. You know, I mean, let's, let's, let's be real. You probably know that the famous French political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States in 1831, and he wrote this about his visit. I sought for the greatness of the United States and her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields and boundless forests. It was not there. I sought for it in her rich mines, her vast world commerce, her public school system, and her institutions of higher learning. It was not there. I looked for it in her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution. It was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Hmm. You may have noticed that the sermon title, if you got the email that Mike sent out, was in God we trust with question marks. Because you wonder sometimes, don't you? <clears throat> Is it true in God we trust? It's easy to say that, but do we really trust in God? And I want to spend just a few minutes from Psalm 33 talking about what we need to do as individuals so that we can say, at least for our part, in God we trust. And what was interesting to me, I mean, we know the, the uh, verse, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It's in the middle of Psalm 33. And I know he's talking about Israel, but it's a principle there of God's blessing on those who honor him. And so I backed up a couple of verses and I went forward a couple of verses, thought, wow, the you take that verse in context, it's even more powerful than when it just stands alone. And so you have it in your sermon notes. If you've downloaded the sermon notes, you have Psalm 33 there in front of you. If you haven't, we're reading from the NIV. 
I encourage you to find that in your Bible app or in your Bible, Psalm 33, starting with verse 10. And I want us to read it together. That's why I gave you the words, so that we could read it in unison. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Wow. If in God we trust is going to be an exclamation point instead of a question mark, I think there are three principles that we can find here in these verses to make that a reality. The first is reverence for God. We didn't read verse 8, but verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Verse 18 talks about the eyes of the Lord being on those who fear him. Now, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about reverence. We're talking for about respect. We're not talking about being afraid of. We're talking about being reverential toward. We have lost so much respect and reverence for the Lord. It's evidenced in the disregard for his name. You know, it, we, we need to go back to hallowed be thy name. You know, we, we need to go back to reverence and respect for God's name. Now, my understanding is that the Native Americans who were here did not take the name of God in vain until the English and the French got here and taught them how to curse in God's name. That's kind of sad, you know, if that's, you know, if that's true. We do know this. We do know that when the, the Hebrew scribes were writing out the scriptures, when they got to the name of God, they stopped what they were doing. They bathed. They put on fresh clothes, and they got a fresh quill. And still, they would not write all of the letters of the name of God. They had such awe and reverence for that. And in our culture, you know, we have lost respect for the name of God. And you know, let's not get so hard on the culture that we don't stop and realize that as Christians in the church world, there's been a loss of respect and reverence for the name of God. Uh, I remember a, a couple of years ago, I guess when social media really, really started to ex explode, somebody said, all you Christians talking about taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, and every post you write is OMG, OMG. He said, what are you doing? 
besides taking the name of the Lord in vain. Whoa, you know, we, we need to stop and think about reverence and respect for God and his name. And if reverence for God is going to return to our nation, it's going to have to first return to the church and to God's people. Because if we're not reverencing his name, if we're not honoring his word, you know, what business do we have talking to a, a people that don't even know God and tell them they need to watch their language? We need to be careful that we're reverencing the name of God. And if you really want to get real tough, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? It's almost like he's saying, you reverence my name by living the way I taught you to live. The second thing he says is that we need to depend on God's power. Verse 20, he is our help and our shield. Again, de Tocqueville's quote, America's great because America is good. And our dependence must be on God and his power. Do you just shake your head as you read more and more what's going on in the news and what's going on in our society? Say, we have lost our way. We've lost our minds. It reminds me of that verse that they said of Israel, that there was no clear vision. And that word vision there means there was no clear declaration of God's truth. And so everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And more and more and more as I hear these people pontificate about things in our society, the verse that keeps coming to my mind is, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We're seeing a lot of that in our nation. And if we're going to get back to in God we trust, we've got to depend on God's power. We don't have the answers. He does. Sociologists keep searching for answers. We who know God know that the ultimate answer is found in him. The old hymn, the arm of flesh will fail you. And we have learned that that is true. We used to sing a chorus based on the Psalms. Some may trust in horses. Some may trust in chariots. We will trust in the name of our God. And yes, once again, you're going to hear 2 Chronicles 7.14 quoted because that's the promise from God's word. If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and my goodness, haven't wicked ways crept into the church world? I don't even know if it's creeping anymore. It's just kind of there. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We must have God's power. I think we've learned over the last 30 years or so, or 50 years or so, that you know the answer is not in politicians. The answer is not in any of that. I was at a seminar one time, and um, one of the speakers was a pastor who had been invited by the president at that time, who had put together uh, a circle of counselors. Uh, I don't know if the motivation was political, you know, so that he could kind of curry favor with evangelicals, or whether he was seriously interested in spiritual counsel. But he put a group of, of ministers from different faiths together and met with them fairly regularly. And the speaker was speaking to us. He said, I've been in the halls of Congress. I've been with the president. I am here to tell you the only hope for our nation is God. He said, it is not 
in politics or politicians. It's in God. And, and we need to understand that. And by the way, God isn't up for election every couple of years, and he's not up for recall votes. He is God. He is in control. And he is our foundation, and he is our hope. And that leads to what he said, and I love it. Verse 8, those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. Verse 22, may your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So many of the societal problems we're facing is because people have lost hope and they don't think they have any one or any place to which to turn. But the scripture is a book of hope. The gospel, by very definition, the word gospel, I'm going to give you a lesson from the Greek language today. Hadn't done that in a long time. The word for gospel is euangelion, which means good news. And it's translated in our Bibles, gospel. The gospel is good news. So many times the way we present it isn't. But, but the gospel in its truest form is good news. Psalm 43, verse 5. Maybe it's a word for somebody today. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He is our hope. We rest in his unfailing love. We hope in his unfailing love. And I'm going to read those verses again. And I encourage you to maybe just kind of clip them out of your notes and stick them somewhere over these next few days that you can, can keep them in front of you, starting in verse 18. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And the words of the song we sang, Lord, may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God our King. That's our prayer, Father, for our nation. We realize that we have a responsibility as your children to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we also realize that it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult to know how to do that in an effective way. And Lord, we need your guidance with that. We need, we need to have your understanding and your direction on how to tactfully and honestly and at the right place, in the right way, at the right time, with the right words and the right manner, we can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. May our light truly so shine in this world of darkness that people will understand that it makes a difference if you truly live for Jesus. May your beauty be seen in us. May your joy be seen in us. May the hope that is in you flow through us. We realize, Lord, there are a lot of hopeless people in our world today. May we be people of hope because your word is a word of hope. You are a God of hope. May we be people of hope. And again, Father, 
give us insight and wisdom on how to address the needs of our society in a way that will be effective and honoring to you. The world's seen enough of, of Christians who seem to have lost their minds. Lord, help us to be the kind of people you have us to be, to take a stand for right. And Lord, we do again pray for a return to righteousness in our nation, a return to you in our nation. Thank you again for the freedom that we have that we met together today to worship you. Thank you for the freedom that still exists uh, to, to a large degree at least so that somebody can get online and, and listen to this sermon in the days and weeks ahead. And thank you most of all for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that we are free from the law of sin and death. We're free from condemnation. We're free to be loved by you and to serve you. And we thank you for it. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and give you his peace now and evermore. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming out today. Thanks for tuning in.